the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen speaking peoples. Those are the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations, recently known as Victoria, BC, Canada. Does Sharon Blackie really need an introduction? I don't I guess I guess for some folks she does. So let's start with the fact that Sharon Blackie, PhD, is a writer, psychologist, and mythologist. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and has taught and lectured at several academic institutions, Jungian organizations, retreat centers, and cultural festivals around the world. Some of her work, particularly her two previous books, If Women Rose Rooted and The Enchanted Life, are considered by many to be among the classic psycho-spiritual and mythic texts of our age. They would sit comfortably on the shelf alongside other greats, such as Clarissa Pinkola Estes and Jean Shinoda Bolin. In her most recent book, Hagitude, Reimagining the Second Half of Life, Sharon explores the inner life of women over 50 and women who've experienced menopause and invites us to challenge belief systems and rewrite the elder years as a time of great flowering. Her highly acclaimed books and courses are focused on the development of the mythic imagination. She likes to explore the relevance of myths, fairy tales, and folk traditions uh, to the personal, cultural, and environmental problems we face today. I've spent a year in a couple of her courses. One was, I think, um, it was like a year of Celtic studies, and another one was one of her signature programs, the, The Mythic Life. So if you're someone who really likes to ground your spiritual practice in a beefy academic paper, I would definitely recommend uh, Dr. Blackie's offerings. They're very rich in research, balanced with storytelling, and a side dose of astrology. They're super great. I'm honored to welcome to the show Dr. Sharon Blackie. So Sharon, what identities do you lead with? You know, I don't really do much in the way of identity labels. I don't know why that is. I don't have a problem with anybody else doing it, but it's not really my thing. So I guess if I were introducing myself professionally, you know, I'd say that I was a writer or a psychologist or a mythologist. But beyond that, I don't really like to confine possibilities. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I there's I would say 10% of my guests say that doesn't that question doesn't land for me. <laughs> like, well, I'm delighted to hear the world. world. It's yeah. Not just me. <laughs> no, great. not just you. So, uh in your book, Hagitude, you do touch on many, many different myths. Um, but in your view, why are there so few myths or really any rites of passage for women who um, might want to outwardly mark the transition from this threshold to elderhood? You know, we do that for adolescents, but there's not much for older women. Um, why do you think that is? Well, to go to the myths and stories first, actually, it's quite interesting that although most of the European myths and folktales don't have much in the way of stories where elder women are the protagonists, the key characters, it is surprising in how many myths elder women play a major role and quite a variety of different roles. You know, so in the book, I talk about these different kinds of characters, the tricksters, the truth tellers, the wise women, the dangerous old women, the fairy godmothers and mentors, and the women who weave the world into being. So there are some very powerful old women in the myths, but somehow that hasn't translated through into society and into certainly our modern day culture. And I think the problem is 
that older women are really seen by the overculture as terribly inconvenient when we have stopped being useful in terms of you know providing a beautiful thing to look at or when we've stopped being fertile the theory is that we don't have anything to contribute anymore and so i think there really hasn't in western culture been anything remotely like a focus on what older women might need which of course is in direct contrast to many indigenous cultures who absolutely still understand that value you know it's no longer just a set of stories for them it's actually a way of being in the world Hmm. You mentioned in the book one of my favorite, very sort of um, uh, uh, background character when we think about the the study of myth, and that's Balbo. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but the woman who um, flashes her genitals at Demeter and um, over the equinox, I was leading some journey work and and a ritual. Of, honoring the Eleusinian mysteries. And somebody said, I've never heard of this old woman who's yeah, tricksterish and flashing her genitals and making Demeter laugh. And why do you think that is? Or how do we find more? And I said, you know, Jean Shinoda Bolin spoke quite a bit about her in one of her books, but I think society just literally doesn't know what to do with a body old woman. <laughs> and so yeah. it's wonderful to see uh, her make an appearance in in your book. And I was also struck by how much you talk about fire. You talked about the chaos and the fire and the incandescence of menopause. And there's a wonderful line where you say, uh, righteous wrath is the province of old women. Can you share a bit more about the incandescence of menopause that you experienced? I can, but first of all, I just want to come back to Baobo because she is very similar to a very wonderful character. Well, not really a character, actually, a, a kind of a, well, a character in stone rather than in story in the Celtic lands called the Sheila Nagig. And the Sheila Nagig was an old woman who ends up in stone carvings, actually on the wall walls of churches and she is there displaying her genitals for all the world to see you know it's quite remarkable that you do find these these old women um in that particular context on christian churches so there was clearly a thing i would say in the ancient <laughs> world beyond just greece and the demeter story where that was you know par for the course it was completely acceptable so i think you know she has cognates it's not just her so that's a really interesting point when it comes to rage yeah um pretty much every woman not every woman but pretty much every woman that i speak to when they talk about their experience of menopause talks about rage and how it seems to come out of nowhere and they don't really know what to do with it and i think that is because Almost all of us, certainly at you know my age, um, have grown up with the idea that women's rage is completely unacceptable, very ugly, that we are supposed to be nice, 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 no matter what age we are. And I do sometimes think that that menopause kind of literally, you know, you think of the hot flushes and all, literally burns away the boundaries that have kept us together and obedient up until then. And one of the first things to bolt past the gates that have been opened 
is our anger because we haven't been allowed to express it. And I think that anger for a lot of women is just a really, a real rage at the ways in which we still are not allowed voices or visibility on our own terms. So to me, that rage is natural. I think it's a pity that we don't talk about it nearly enough. And I'm always interested by the fact that, again, if we go back to Greek mythology, righteous rage was the province of three old women, the Furies. Now, they're often portrayed as just like, you know, randomly cross, kind of going out and um, uh, just like, you know, dealing out bits of vengeance here and there with anybody they don't like. But actually, it wasn't that at all. They were very much part of what kept the world in balance because what they did is that they they raged against injustice and, you know, various cultural no-nos, anything from killing a parent to disrespecting a parent. But they always gave the person that they pursued, who had committed the dread deed, the chance to atone. And I really, really like that, that, you know, that that it was okay in our ancient European myths for old women to be angry. But what they had done is that they had taken that kind of often very unfocused rage that we find ourselves feeling at menopause, and they had transformed it into something that was useful. And I think we have to feel the rage. You know, we've been told too often in our lives that we mustn't feel the rage. I think we have to feel it and to own it. But ultimately, I think it's really important to be able to transform it so that we put it into something that serves us or the world mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. I So I'm thinking now again, more cross-culturally, and I don't know this tradition very well, but um, in Tibetan myths of the wild Dakinis who would weep and laugh at the injustices or at the perpetrators of injustice of the world. And so they would be weeping that anyone would listen or follow that or obey, and they would be um, laughing at, you know, the whoever was the oppressor saying, you know, you're so ridiculous. And then they Mm. would consume the poison of the community and transmute it into medicine. And I've always envisioned them as kind of like these young or like, you know, middle-aged women, but I bet they were elders now that I think about it. It's like, that would make way more sense. It would make more sense. That's a lovely (laughs) idea though, a lovely story. I didn't know about them. Yeah. So in the first part of your book, you offered this like overarching theme of three key archetypes of the elder woman. There's the alchemist, the medial woman, and the witch. And those three sort of seemed to go together. Would you describe those and why you feel that those ones were the important ones to lead with in your book? Well, they were really the archetypes, I think, that are that are up there for us during menopause as opposed to later in elderhood. And I do see menopause very much as an alchemical process. So, you know, that concept in old alchemy of being in the crucible and being burnt so that everything that is superfluous and unnecessary and that doesn't serve you is stripped away. And it seems to me that that is absolutely what menopause is about. So the alchemist, you know, when we think of alchemists, most of us, would think of those images of 
from medieval times of the old man with a beard, very serious looking, you know, really smart robes in a laboratory with all kinds of arcane contraptions about him. But actually, some of the best known early alchemists were women. And some of them were the forerunners of what today we would call chemists and invented major apparatuses that that are used in laboratories like the Alembic, you know. Um, So I think we have to revisit that image that we have of the alchemist as an old man. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that at some point in menopause, you know, we are the substance on which the alchemy is being perpetrated. But at some point, as we move out of it, we become the alchemist, we become agents of transformation, not just our own transformation, but potentially the transformation of the world. So I think for any woman who goes through menopause, the alchemist is a relevant archetype. Mm. The medial woman is an interesting one. And this this was a phrase that was coined by uh, Tony Wolfe, who was uh, a Jungian analyst who was Jung's student and also Jung's lover. And she um, talked about four, what she thought were the four key important female archetypes. Now, I'm sure that today, you know, there are people who would say that there might be four more. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, that was what she thought. And there was the mother, there was the Amazon um, I've, the Hetaira, which is kind of a muse character, mm-hmm. all of which, so these three tend to be defined by their relationship to other people, obviously the mother to her children, the muse by the person that she's musing, mm-hmm. and um, the Amazon by kind of setting herself up as a kind of feminine alternative to, to male power. But the fourth one is an archetype called the medial woman. And Wolf described the medial woman as someone who is not defined by anybody else at all, who is defined only by who she is and who is in some senses a mystic. And the medial woman is this kind of searcher, um, the seeker in us, the one who in the second, on the threshold of the second half of life begins to look inwards rather than outwards and ask questions like, you know, what is this for? What am I doing here? What am I going to do for the the remaining decades of my life? And I think that that archetype comes up for all of us in menopause, whether we choose to acknowledge and follow it or not. I think it's a natural process that at this threshold point, before we enter the second half of our lives, we start to talk about meaning. And the witch, well, gosh, I mean, the witch in a sense is an example of the medial woman. Uh, she's a particularly well-known one and a particularly popular one, and we have reinvented the archetype over the witch of, of the witch over the centuries. From in the Middle Ages, being a, an entirely wholeheartedly malevolent figure, that was the definition of a witch. A witch was someone who used magic for ill means, and we've kind of reinvented that archetype. So now we associate it with you know green, with nature with um, the wisdom of embodiment and all of those wonderful things, which I think are so important and are calling so many women today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I I wonder, we've, okay, so we've been talking about menopause and listeners of the podcast have been listening to us, to me and guests talk about menopause for the last six or seven episodes and talk about the archetype of witch and whether or not we identify with that. So I think 
just to kind of bring listeners up to speed here, I'm 47. I'm perimenopausal. Um, I, I've only talked maybe a little bit about erratic cycles. I haven't had hot flashes and things, but maybe we should actually just ground the listeners a little bit in just a little bit of your experience of menopause. What Could you just share a little bit of what it was like for you? Yeah, well, I had a, a, a sudden entry into menopause, which probably wouldn't have been typical in that I had endometriosis quite severely for a number of years. And the only thing that would control the, the pain uh, was to be on the contraceptive pill, which normalized my cycles. And I'd always said that when I was 50, I would come off the pill because, you know, the evidence is very clear that the risks increase quite dramatically um, in any kind of hormonal replacement as you grow older and particularly over 50. So at 50, I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to come off the pill and I'm going to manage the pain, you know, somehow or other. And I never had another period. Hmm. Um, now, a lot of women say, well, you didn't do menopause properly. And it, you know, I, I did. I mean, menopause is not just about period stopping. There is that whole other set of physical symptoms that come along with it and the whole set of psychological symptoms that come along with it. So in a sense, although I didn't suffer physically with, with perimenopause, which is a lovely thing and I'm very, very grateful for, nevertheless, I kind of car crashed into all of that rage, hot flushed, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? Am I going completely mad? <laughs> kind of thing that happens when menopause comes on suddenly. And I, you know, this of course happens, it, it must be acknowledged to a lot of very much younger women who um, find themselves going into menopause as a result of chemotherapy for things like mm -hmm. breast cancer. And, you know, again, that's a bit of a car crash. It's very, very sudden. So it's a different set of challenges, but really I don't think it, I don't think it's different in essence. So whatever you don't suffer in terms of physical symptoms, you nevertheless have that whole sense of your entire life being turned on its head and, you know, shaken and, and stirred and um, you have no idea what is going to emerge from it. So that really would have, would have been my focus. The, the, the rage, the hot flushes, the sense that everything, as you said earlier, was about fire, that, that fire was of all of the elements. You know, I love water. I came to terms with air. I love earth, but fire always frightened me. And I don't really know why. I think it might have been that sense of it when I was a child. My father um, was a violent character. And I think I probably associated fire with, you know, with that kind of irrational kind of anger or fury. Mm. And I was never sure how to handle fire because, again, it wasn't permitted. But menopause was very much for me about I dreamt, you know, I dreamt of fire. I dreamt of dragons. I dreamt of women walking out of volcanoes. I, it was just a real, really strong lesson mm. on how to manage fire. And and the the image that worked for me, we're back again to the alchemist. The image that worked for me was the image of the crucible, where fire is used in a controlled and very powerful fashion to strip away everything that isn't needed. And I could relate to that. Mm, mm, the potency of that is very inspiring. I, I'm feeling chills. I'm excited about it. As, <laughs> as someone who um, ha has, I, I move through the world and express with a lot of fire and the ability to contain and um, regulate and not necessarily control, but channel it has been 
the work of the last few years. And I'm uh, sure people are happy. I've been doing the work before I get into this period of my life. Um, but well, that yeah, but isn't that amazing? Like, yeah, to be able to do that, because I think part of the problems that women face, in fact, all of the problems that women face during menopause is we don't have these conversations and nobody is prepped for it. And even today, you know, in the UK, there are many, many, many more conversations around menopause. It, it's all of a sudden, it's kind of like, you know, the fashion. But all of those conversations are in the context of holding on to youth and beauty, what the culture thinks of as beauty, as long as you possibly can and not letting it slip away. Whereas really, we should be talking about finding ways to really use the transformations for, for the better. Hmm. I think so. In in my circles, partially because I lead uh, wilderness quests for women, and so we talk about being in the winter time of our lives as being the time of the giveaway, where you know you're thinking about um, the spiritual lessons that you're hoping will be legacy pieces in your community. You're you're looking back on your life and thinking, what do I have to contribute, etc. And I know some of my clients and, and quest participants um, who are around the age of like 60 and older have sometimes felt a bit conflicted about that because they've spent their entire lives tending and giving. And if I may say, this is, you know, the boomer generation that like truly have not really reaped the benefits of the empowerment um, movement in some ways. Some of these, you know, women who started working as nurses when they were 20 and then like literally did that for the bulk of their years. And so now in retirement, they're like, I, I don't, I don't want to keep giving back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so you know, you talk about legacy quite deeply in the book, um, and there and there seem to be many paths for that. So, how how might you counsel a woman who has spent their whole life tending to others who may feel resistant to the idea that the role of the elder is to give back? Well, that's a really good question, a bit of a complicated one. I'll try and I'll try and make it brief. So, I I've worked a lot with the idea of calling. And, you know, the springs originally from the ancient Greek uh, philosophy of Plato and pre-Platonic cosmology, which is the idea that every soul comes into this world with a particular, let's call it a gift, Um, a particular, it's not just a gift, it's a particular unique way of being human in the world. It's, um, It's like being a particular flower in the midst of many flowers in a flower garden. You are that flower, you know, and not another flower. And only you can be that flower. And if you weren't that flower, then somehow the garden would be lacking. So that's how I see calling. I do, I do believe, I do subscribe to that, that every one of us has something to be, to show uh, in the world. I think during the first half of our lives, yes, whether we are mothers or not, we do tend as women to be caretakers for all kinds, you know, whether it be a partner, whether it be children, whether it be, you know, whatever it be, it comes to, to be. I think that's how we are defined in the culture. I think that in the second half of life, our calling, to, to reflect our calling is the most important thing of all, whatever it might be, whatever that unique way of being human that we have is it is our job at this time of life to really let it shine. And that can take various forms. 
but I've always thought that there are two aspects of calling. One is that it is about a gift, a way of being that enhances the world. You know, with that, again, without the, that particular flower, the world would be a sadder place, a less beautiful place. But it is also about our own growth as a soul and what we came here to learn. Again, you know, this is my belief system. It may not be everybody's. And I think that as women in the first half of our lives, yes, you're quite right. We've been so focused on tending, on giving, on caretaking that we kind of have forgotten the second bit. But in a sense, to me, they are all part of the same thing. So that if we, if we give, if we display who we are to the world, if we embody our own unique selves in the world, then we are tending to it because ultimately that is our job, if that makes sense. And I think if you, if you are able to see your life in that context, a lot of things fall into place, or at least they did for me. I don't have to strive to save people, for example. I don't have to unreasonably caretake people. I just have to put my own particular gift out there in whatever way feels right to me and that nurtures me as well as the world. And then it, then, then that's it. That's, that's kind of what it's for. So I'm not sure that that's a very direct answer to your question, but that's a kind of orientation to it that really, really matters to me. If we go on through life, you know, appearing to, to put ourselves last or to, to adopt some kind of martyr syndrome, which would be even worse, you know, then it, then it just, then yes, that just gets exhausting. But I don't think it has to be. I think, you know, that whole cliche of letting your light shine is really what it comes down to. That's enough. It's enough for everybody. And it's enough for you because that's what you were brought here to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a nuanced um, response. I, I like that what you're providing is like a manner of approach. I think there isn't a direct answer because everybody's situation is unique. But the manner of approach of, well, just as you said in the start, there's a way to be there's a, there's a way to show your calling. It's not that you're doing something, you know, it's not. A, yeah. yeah, it's an expression wonderful. really of who you are. And the reason why I like that is I think there does come a point in your life. It came for me, not necessarily with menopause, which I think in many ways I failed at. You know, I, I pushed on through it. Yeah. I didn't do any of the things that I tell other people in the book that they might want to do. <laughs> it was probably my my kind of brush with lymphoma with a, a fairly aggressive form of cancer um last year that really brought it home to me what that what all of that meant and clarified it for me and i think when you do that when you just say okay i can only be what i am i can only give what i am then also one of the things that gets lost is attachment to outcome you know, you stop asking questions like, how many people can I reach or how many people can I save or what have you? It's just like, well, you're doing what you can. You are being what you can be in the world. That's all you can be. And that turns out, strangely, to be enough. Mm. So you brought up the, your experience with lymphoma. And in the book, you have a, a really lovely story about the big dream you had and and so how you came to these insights about 
calling. Would, would you share a little more about the big dream you had um, shortly before your cancer diagnosis? Yeah. And I should say that most of my dreams are just like random rubbish, you know, um, <laughs> then I, I'm not a very interesting dreamer, but every now and again, maybe half a dozen times in my life, I have had the classical Jungian big dream, which is the one where you just know in it, you know, that this is something important that you've got to pay attention to. And yes, I had a dream where I was, I was in a, in a jail cell and I, not surprisingly, I wasn't particularly pleased by that, um, being a freedom lover. And there was a there was a jailer in the cell with me and he was in kind of, you know, monkish kind of robes and a bald head. And um, and uh, he's, he said to me, and I said to him, well, I can't possibly, you know, I'm too busy to be here for six months. He told me that I had to be there for six months. I couldn't possibly. Can, can I not just like at least go home, you know, for the odd trip? No, he said, no, you can't. You've got to be here for six. You've got to be here for six months. And then he pointed to a little locker by the kind of monkish bed in the cell and said, and what will you put in that locker? And I realized that he was asking the question of, you know, what what I needed to bring with me into that cell. I had a choice to do that. What did I need to bring with me that would fill this tiny, tiny locker? Couldn't bring a lot. I could only bring a little. What did I need to bring with me to make that time rich and worthwhile? And you know, I didn't know in the dream that well, that wasn't how it worked. And then, um, so I thought I was thinking about that and I turned around and I saw a candle by the bedside and I thought, oh, I'll light the candle. It would be nice and cosy. And I lit the candle and it just went whoosh, like some mad kind of gas lamp. And it went whoosh and then it settled into a really bright, steadily burning, but quite fierce flame. Um, and the jailer said, hmm, a holy flame. And I said, I don't know, you know, couldn't possibly say <laughs> kind of thing but and then I woke up um but you know I did have six months of chemotherapy and I had to let everything fall by the wayside that I had planned um you know I, I cancelled a whole bunch of events that I had been planning to do a lot of work that I had been planning to do and effectively I I was in that cell I mean it wasn't an unpleasant experience but it was a fairly focused experience and I had to really think during that six months of what mattered to me you know what was in the locker what, what was I going to do and what I was going to do is I was going to write everything nothing else mattered I was going to write and that sense of that being a holy experience that it was it was an experience that was there to show me something to teach me something to move me through some blockage that nothing else other than facing death would have achieved was very, very strong in me all the way through. And for, that's the reason why I say in the book that although it was far from an enjoyable experience, I promise you, I wouldn't give it back. Mm -hmm. Would you say one of you, you, so in the book, you say you emerged burning with new insights um, on the other side of your experience with cancer. Was part of it then, it sort of sounds like you're saying that there was something about writing that sort of intensified. Was that more about the message that you needed to put out in the world or was that more about your calling? I think probably my calling. And so my, you know, my tendency really throughout life uh, and certainly throughout menopause when I ought to have known better, but frankly didn't, was just to like do everything because the world needed saving. Or yes. Something. You know, <laughs> I couldn't possibly stop. What The world will fall apart without me. It's ridiculous when you think about it. But, but I was one of these people that just like, yeah, I just kept on going on and I didn't stop. And, um, and so I was not tending myself. 
at all or listening to myself or listening to the world or engaging as much as I ought to have done. And I really did feel that that experience was intended to just bring me up short so that that is what I did. And I've always had a little bit of a conflict, I suppose, in my life in that, you know, I love teaching and teaching is important. Talking to people is important. You can see the transformation before your eyes, but I find visibility like that very tiring. It's not really me. You know, I don't, I don't like that. It's not adulation. That would be foolish. I'm not a rock star, but I don't like that kind of intense focus on me and who I am. And the the character that I've always related to ever since I was a small child is the the old woman in the woods who's hidden. She can be found, but she's hidden. She doesn't need to sell her wares or market herself on the web. She she is found and has the wisdom when people need her. And I've always kind of like, you know, struggled between on the one hand, I need to be out there doing this stuff. On the other hand, I just really want to go into the woods and be a hermit. And I think what that taught me is maybe, maybe it's shifted a little bit. Maybe, maybe the writing, the kind of hermetic, um, hermetic probably, um, withdrawing from kind of public view, not entirely, but a little bit is where I really need to do it. And I don't need any more to do all of that teaching that I find so intensely satisfying, but so intensely draining at the same time. Mm. Good lessons. It's relatable content. Um, so <laughs> related to the, the role of writer then, in the book, you you make a point to highlight the role of the cultural creative, um, this role for menopausal women. And as I mentioned, we've been talking about menopause, but also intergenerational sharing or the lack of intergenerational sharing. That's a conversation we've been having on the show for a few episodes. Mm -hmm. um, and then more recently, you know, after the autumn equinox, we turned our attention to the dark half of the year is this time to dream and also embrace our creativity and let things incubate and sort of, as you're saying, like go into the woods or your inner cabin inside. And you weave in your book, these two themes together quite beautifully. There's a line you write um, that thriving in the heart of the creative fire is often presumed to be largely the province of the young or of at least of people in their prime. So for those folks who would call themselves late bloomers and, you know, we're entering this, this dream time or this time of maybe turning inwards where maybe hearing your calling is a bit easier, could you share what what does creativity mean to you, especially in the context of late bloomings? I think we have been taught, most of us, not all of us, but I think most of us have been taught to see creativity as, as stuff that we do as, you know, as a profession. So if you're an artist who gets paid in exhibitions or if you're a writer who gets published and sells books, or if you're a weaver, you know, who is making product. Um, and I think it's important, particularly when we're older, but not just when we're older, actually all through life to see creativity slightly differently. I mean, creativity is an energy that brings something new into being. It doesn't have to be concrete like a painting or a book or a weaving. It is just a way of being in the world that constantly seeks to shift, transform, grow, you know, recreate a new 
doesn't have to be a concrete object. And I think that we tend in our culture in general to be horribly focused on concrete objects rather than on process. Um, and so, again, you know, if you look at mythology, you find, again, in Greek mythology, let's stick with that for a minute, you find the three fates who were old women all of the artists, of course, being men, portrayed them as beautiful, graceful creatures. They weren't in the texts. They were old women who literally um, spun and weaved the world into being. But these old women aren't producing concrete tapestries. You know, it, it's very much a metaphor. They, they are engaged in something creative. And so all women in those days would know what it was to spin and to, uh, and to weave and so on, because that was women's work. And so they would recognize the process, but they weren't weaving tapestries for sale or whatever. They were weaving the world into being. They were recreating the world anew on a daily basis so that it would keep growing and keep becoming. And so to me, creativity is that art of, of never standing still. It's kind of the opposite of stasis, I suppose, where you see something that can be transformed. You see something that can be grown, something that can be shifted, something that can make the world in whatever way, if you'll forgive the cliche, a better place. And I think all of us can do that. When we're younger as women, the focus, whether we choose to go there or not, or whether we're able to go there or not, is very much on creating physical life, on pregnancy, on motherhood, on having babies. And for many of us who don't make that choice or don't unfortunately have that choice, we are already kind of turning our attention to other ways of creating, of other ways of bringing new things into being in the world. But I think for all of us, whether we've been mothers or not, at this stage in our lives, you know, even mothers, it's like the, the creative energy now is turning inwards. You can't produce physical life anymore. What are you going to do with that life creative energy? And so I think really it is a question of shifting the discussion of creativity. And yes, we we also tend to see creativity as a very outward kind of willful energetic, action-oriented way of being in the world. We're producing. And gosh, these days, don't we just love to produce? Whereas I see it very much as a, as a kind of incubation. And so I, you know, all my best work, all my best writing comes in this half of the year. I couldn't write a book in mid, at midsummer <laughs> under <laughs> any circumstances. So I think the two are kind of tied, but it is, it is very much tied into that way of of looking at creativity in, in a wider fashion, I guess. Mm -hmm. In the book, you also mentioned some indigenous cultures who recognize menopause as like keeping the fire or keeping the creativity for yourself now, like you're not releasing your creativity every month in some kind of flow. And so it's a, it's a time of creating the self. And I think that's going to be really inspiring for a, a lot of folks. I I appreciate you bringing up being child-free, and I have a number of clients, and we've had conversations like this in my Numinous Network about um, the dearth of rites of passage for women who are child-free. And in the book you write, um, women who never become mothers run the risk of perpetually remaining daughters. I, I just found that line very arresting, um, and, and that the risk is that one never claims or learns one's own authority. So how do you find your own authority then? 
I think that's a very individual answer. Uh, th there would be a very individual answer to that question for each of us. I, I, I do, I, you know, I, my closest, oldest friend also does not have children, in, in her case, not by choice. And we both have this sense, particularly when we faced our mothers, who were very strong characters in very different ways, that we weren't adults yet. You know, we weren't allowed to be adults because we hadn't done what they had done. We hadn't produced children. We hadn't brought them up. We weren't properly grown up. We hadn't had to make all of those kind of decisions. And and both of us, you know, it came out of a kind of random discussion when we were both in our late 50s. It's just like, yes, I feel that too. Just that sense of in a culture which really values the mother archetype and indeed the grandmother archetype, you don't have any validity if you haven't mm. been there. And in fact, that this whole question is going to be the subject of my next book. Um, how, how as a daughter do you turn into an adult? How do you, how do you gain that inner authority which can come with having children and with having to care for and having responsibility for another life if you don't have that how can you own that how can you create that sense of authority and adultness in your own life for me you know so I do think that that is very very different for each of us for me it was very much about uh, working with my relationship with my own mother and that was a very complex relationship she was an alcoholic during my teens which was not fun and, you know, I had a lot of resentment, and but not surprisingly, I'm quite happy to own that. I think it was appropriate to be angry at my mother. Um, but there is a point where you have to be able to step back and just say, okay, you know, she was these things. She failed in these ways. I am different things. I fail in other ways and I succeed in other ways as she succeeded in many ways. And it's about expanding our concept of what it is to be a grown up. And not, as the culture really so often does, tying it into the production of children and our fertility. There are other ways to be fertile, other ways to be creative, other ways to be grown up. And again, we don't have the conversations about it. It's one of those things that is taken for granted. The mothers and the grandmothers are the grown ups. Mm. Well, we'll have to have you back on for that next book. I, I, <laughs> I know I'm getting excited about it already. That's exciting. Um, okay. So the last question on the podcast is always the same. It's how do you cope with grief and rage? But given that you deal with rage in depth in your book, which is like so awesome, people want to know how Sharon Blackie deals with rage. Um, it's a great book. I'm quite well behaved. I have to say. Don't, don't, yeah. Don't. Yeah. It seems very, very refined. Actually, it's a great model. Um, but how's your relationship with grief these days? Hmm. I've never been good at grief, I have to mm. say. I have a horror of it. Mm. Um, I, you know, I never had, for example, if we bring it down to the purely personal, I never had anybody very close to me who died until my mother died about a year ago. My father and I were not close. Um, so when he died, it was kind of irrelevant, to be honest. Um, I felt more of a relief when my mother died than a deep grief. I lost a very, very dear dog mm. uh, more recently, which was very, very much harder. And I've always feared grief because I do, you know, as a consequence of childhood experiences with a, a father who was violent and left with a mother who left because she was drunk a lot, 
Um, I have a, a an intense fear of abandonment. I suppose if I had a kind of key wound, it would be that. And to me, grief is associated with loss and loss is associated with abandonment and it can't be born. It can't possibly be born. So I think the, for me, the coming to terms with death as a creature, an energy, a being, I don't know how you would, you know, want yourself to, to think of death that had to be befriended, um, that uh, a way of being in the world or not being in the world that, that had to be accepted all tied up with that lymphoma journey was a key thing for me. But the mm. thing that mattered more than anything in dealing with grief, particularly in a climate sense, you know, in the state mm. of the world kind of sense, comes back to this concept of calling. And finally, believing that I am absolutely in the full flowering of my calling. You know, that I'm not resisting it anymore. I don't think I have to be all things to all people. I just do my stuff. And as I said earlier, when all you can do in the world is be yourself and demonstrate your own flowering in that garden, you really do lose attachment to outcome. And I don't mean by that that you stop caring about the state of the world, but you recognize that this is what you are here for. This is your gift to the world. And if you do that properly and wholeheartedly, it is all you can do and it is enough. And I, don't, I really, again, I want to stress, I do not mean that in any complacent way. So I found that since I really did believe, not that I'm doing any, everything perfectly, I don't want this in any way to sound self-satisfied, <laughs> but that I know I'm on that track now. You know, I've left a lot of things behind. They were, they were burnt away um, either through menopause or through uh, the experience of almost dying with lymphoma. I'm on that track now. And that is enough. So the grief around the world is there, but I can't do anything about it other than be what I am. And so that does help it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing what you are and who you are with the world through your words. Thank you for following your calling. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Carmen. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hagitude is now available in stores, and I'm telling you, this will be a highly recommended book, one that will be shared and passed along. It would be an especially great gift for any woman who's actually looking forward to aging and menopause. So like my hands right up here, I would love to receive this book. I know a lot of women really dread menopause, um, but whether you're embracing this time or not, I know most women, everyone I've spoken with, wishes there was more conversation about it. So here it is, a book about the spiritual purpose and the developmental tasks of menopause. Thank you, Sharon Blackie. And thank you for listening today, my friends, especially to my listeners in Wales. Listener shout out to all of you there. Thank you for being with us today. Now, as we're turning towards the dark time of year, you want to know something that's become a winter ritual for me? submitting reviews for the businesses and books I've appreciated over the past year. I used to do this kind of around New Year's, um, but now I've kind of realized, you know, it would be like much better for all of these people if I did it before the sort of holiday gifting season. Um, and so now I think about it around Samhain, which is Witch's New Year. Um, 
and I'm not very good at doing reviews as I go along in life, but since I've ritualized it as an act of service, it's become a really fun thing for me to do. I like set aside an hour one day, I do it in a batch. Basically, I give like five star reviews on Google to like my eyebrow lady, our veterinarian, my like son's physio, and then all of the books I've enjoyed that I that I haven't reviewed yet. Even like pretty classic books, especially ones by older women. So I, I do that on Goodreads or on um, Amazon if that's where I got the book. Usually that's a more recent one. If you've enjoyed the work of Sharon Blackie or, you know, older books by Jean Schnodebolin or Charlene Spretnack or Cindy Brennan, any author that you love, have you given them some love on Goodreads or Amazon? Because not only does it help amplify their work, which of course is useful, but damn it, it really feels nice to be well met and seen and have your work appreciated when you've put so much of yourself into this creative act and, and stepped into the calling of cultural creative, as Sharon says. And even if you didn't love the work, can you imagine who would? You should write that review. So my own book, The Spirited Kitchen, is in stores on October 31st. Of course, I really hope you like it, but regardless of whether you do or not, your honest review on Goodreads or Amazon helps the right reader find it, and that would really mean a lot to me. If you'd like to get on my newsletter to learn about new podcast episodes or my new online programs coming up or coming soon, between you and me, an announcement about my next wilderness quest which is happening in the mountains of British Columbia late spring 2023 if you want to know about that and get on my my newsletter list go to my website at carmenspaniola.com c-a-r-m-e-n-s-b-a-g-n-o-l-a until next time take care <laughs>